and welcome to the latest edition of Business Leader Insights, uh, brought to you today by our sponsor, Nightstone Capital. Uh, Business Leader uh, is the UK's leading uh, B2B media platform, has a print magazine, live and virtual events network, and a website that is updated daily. For those of you who don't know about Business Leader, please do go and visit us at www.businessleader.co.uk. I also wanted to mention that our GoTech Awards uh, are currently open for entry, and it's quite fitting uh, because today we'll be uh, interviewing uh, a tech entrepreneur called Dr. Alex Young. So let us uh, begin. Uh, welcome, Alex. Uh, how are you today? I'm very well. Thank you uh, very much for having me on. Um, it's a lovely sunny day here in Bristol, just down the road from yourself. So uh, delighted to be speaking to you. No, thank you, Alex. You, 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 we definitely have got the good weather with us. At the <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll just start, Alex, by if you could just give us a brief background uh, to your career. Yeah, sure. So um, as, as you mentioned, I, um, I trained as a doctor, so I was at Bristol Medical School. Um, I've always been quite entrepreneurial and, and interested in tech, um, basically a, a huge geek. Um, so I, I had a company uh, that I founded when I was a medical student um, and then taught myself basically how to do some basic coding. Um, and with that, fairly awful coding uh, knowledge managed to put together a second company um, that did a lot of online training for um, doctors and nurses who who need to sit multiple exams kind of during their um, their training and um, I founded that company uh, when I was just basically graduating from medical school um, and then ran it basically as a bit of a sort of I guess uh, caricature of like a sort of tech entrepreneur, i.e. I, I coded it from my bedroom. I was the only employee. Um, it was all online based and ended up selling kind of internationally and, and got quite big. Um, and so that I, I sort of had the bug um, of, of doing business and, and specifically around education technology, um, which for me was always very important because working um, in the NHS and, and I specialized in trauma and orthopedic surgery, uh, which deals with uh, fixing broken bones in, a, in an emergency trauma capacity, uh, but also helping people to regain their mobility if they've got things like arthritis through hip and, and knee replacements and sports injury um, surgery. And um, in, you know, in, in the hospital setting, your people, um, as in other businesses, are your most important asset. And, and in the NHS, as we've seen during the COVID pandemic, um, people work above and beyond what's expected of them and they love helping patients. And um, one of my big things, you know, how can we help um, the people in any organization to, to basically be the best they can be, um, both to make their lives as enjoyable as possible, but also to help the, the overall organization um, and the end, um, I guess, customer, which in, in healthcare cases is, is the patient, is you and I. Um, so I wanted to uh, wanted to do something that really sort of empowered the workforce, and and part of that is obviously education and training. And so um, around about uh, three years ago, now in 2017, I took a relatively big decision to to leave clinical practice full time and go full time as the the CEO and founder of Verti. And what we do at Verti, our mission is to make experiential on the job, um, in-person training, affordable and accessible to everyone on the planet um, in, in order to improve that human performance. Um, and we do that using some deep technology. So we um, built our, our company on the back of um, some artificial intelligence data analysis, um, as well as using things like augmented reality and virtual reality uh, to put people into uh, infrequent but hazardous training environments, which can sometimes be quite difficult to recreate 
uh, for organizations. Um, so the, uh, the, the kind of main focus of what we do is, is effectively training the workforce. Um, and uh, in a relatively short period of time, so around about sort of two years, uh, we've scaled up. So now we've got offices uh, in Bristol, which is where our tech team is based, uh, as well as in the US, um, in Texas and in California. Hey, thanks uh, for that uh, introduction, Alex. It's uh, certainly been must be busy for you uh, with those kind of two two different kind of career options. I mean, you mentioned that you've kind of scaled a company, you've launched a company whilst uh, working in uh, the field of kind of uh, medicine. I mean, where, where would you say your, your your work ethic comes from? Um, I mean, good question. I mean, I, I was having a conversation with some of our team about this um, earlier this week. I mean, I think for me, I just absolutely love doing what I'm doing at the moment. I think the, uh, the sort of uh, the, the problem that we're solving um, and the mission that we're on to, to scale experiential learning for organizations is, is so big and so exciting to try and achieve. And um, I mean, if, if you think about how anyone learns anything, a lot of it is, is done through practice and in um, certainly in healthcare, um, there was an old sort of, I guess, surgical training adage, which I think was from Confucius originally, which was see one, do one and teach one, i.e. you watch someone do something practically, um, you then uh, do it yourself to learn and then you teach someone to get it really sort of embedded in your brain. And if you if you think about that in a, a medical setting, um, as a patient, that's not particularly reassuring. If someone's sort of, you know, seen something once, then they've done an operation, and then they're teaching someone. Um, so that that's obviously a little bit um, exaggerated, but it's it, it it brings up a valid concern, which in healthcare, you know, if people aren't trained adequately, they might feel underprepared. The workforce will therefore feel quite anxious about things they're being asked to do, um, and the patients are the ones that are effectively put at risk. Um, so for for us. Um, I you know, wake up every morning excited about what we are doing. Um, I love doing what I am doing. Um, so we've got a fantastic team. Um, our tech team is is amazing. Um, all of the people that we've hired have been excellent, um, uh, you know, internationally. And it's just great for me. It's energizing to work with really, really, you know, fantastic people who are solving a really, really big problem. Oh, thank you, uh, Alex. And um... Obviously, we the last four months have, have, have been been quite a unique situation. How how has that impacted Vertian, and how have you reacted to it? Yeah, it's been it's been very interesting. I mean, um, last year and and from since the company's been founded, our entire mantra has been, how can we scale um, your in person training or anything in person remotely through technology? And that's basically our our USP. How can we deliver scale? How can we um, deliver new data insights into how people are training for organizations. So um, when uh, COVID-19 happened and people were no longer physically able to, to go into any sort of environment, um, let alone uh, do in-person face-to-face training, um, we, yeah, I guess it, it sort of magnified our messaging and everything that we do. So um, one of the really cool things that, that I'm very proud of that we were able to see was um, specifically in healthcare and we do work in in other sectors as well outside of healthcare but that that's probably our, our biggest sector at the moment um and it was the one obviously that was um taking the the biggest focus and the biggest hit because of this the the covid patient surge in hospitals and um as i'm probably sure you you and and the viewers know from um everything in the press um a lot of the 
the, the COVID patients had respiratory conditions and, and were then going into intensive care units within a relatively short space of time. So the whole um, you know, lockdown and stay at home was all about reducing the actual kind of um, short term burden on the healthcare service. And I guess behind the scenes in healthcare, lots of the employees were being um, either redeployed to respiratory departments or intensive care units where they might not normally work. Say, for example, me as an orthopedic surgeon, um, I wouldn't know how to use a ventilator. Um, I wouldn't uh, you know, necessarily know how to manage respiratory conditions um, as, as well as someone who's been doing that for you know, 20, 30 years. So there was a huge amount of upskilling that was needed from the workforce. Um, and equally, people were coming back from retirement and volunteers were, were being brought in to basically help out um, to, to meet the demand. And so one of the things that we were able to do when face-to-face -face training was really limited was provide some of these resources through our platform, which um, our, our platform's relatively unique in that, although, yes, we've, um, we're seen in many circles as sort of a virtual reality or augmented reality company, um, we actually work across lots of different technologies through a sort of central cloud-based platform, um, which can then be used on mobile devices, on desktops, as, as well as VR and AR headsets. So um, a lot of the work that we did around COVID was, was quite basic, actually. It was getting training materials to frontline healthcare staff um, as quickly as possible, um, because a lot of the, the COVID precautionary guidelines were being updated and, and changing on a daily basis. Um, and that was both in the UK and, and the US and, and in other organizations and countries we, we were working with. Um, so we were able to basically um, uh, partly sort of help the organizations upskill their staff, but for the actual staff, really just try and reduce anxiety um, and provide them with the information they needed uh, in time for them to manage patients. And I'm sure you can imagine that for um, any healthcare worker, they were going into work, um, they were you know, literally putting their, their own lives uh, on the line, um, as well as being concerned about potentially cross-infecting their, their family, their relatives, as well as other patients. So it was a very, very stressful time uh, for people in the healthcare sector. And we were just, you know, very pleased that we could do a you know a small part to 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 help them um you know meet that demand well, thanks um alex you, you know you mentioned that the healthcare sector there what what role uh, do you see technology playing in the future in terms of you know we're seeing a, a rise in kind of telemedicine and, and apps which can kind of help people prevent rather than kind of cure uh, conditions i mean do, do you see this accelerating now um and, and what do you see as the kind of the the, the future for that space yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, any big any big sector, not just healthcare. I think healthcare often gets a, a bit of a bad um, bad name for being slow on technology adoption. But I, I think any sector um, or, or any organisation that's that's very big and has sort of procurement channels is slow on technology adoption. So I think that's one thing to say. I don't think healthcare is really hugely different from other sectors. Um, and what we've seen with with COVID is that you're now the, the sort of behavioral change needed by the people who make the purchase decisions or the people who are actually using um, the technology like um, healthcare professionals um, has been forced by this, this, you know, huge um, sort of black swan pandemic event. And one of the most challenging things I think in healthcare is that um, doctors, nurses, any, any healthcare professional, um, they're incredibly busy and you're trained throughout your whole uh, medical school career and postgraduate training 
to do things in a very structured, quick, algorithmic way to basically try and help as many patients as you can in your, um, in you know, in, within the hours of your day. So when new technology is being um, you know, pushed into into like a GP surgery or into a hospital, um, I think one of the things that people forget is the doctors and nurses have to learn how to use that, and then it's not got to slow them down because if it does, their jobs are so fast paced that they're just not going to use it. And that's when it doesn't become adopted. Um, now, on, um, you know, in, in a normal uh, setting, so say last year, things like telehealth, telemedicine were, were being adopted. And, and I, I completely you know, support the use of technology throughout healthcare um, to improve automation, to reduce the time um, that, that patients need to wait, uh, whether it's for an operation or just to be seen by a doctor. Um, and I think what we've seen during COVID is um, it's really, really you know, been pushed through and there's, there's now significant more amount of evidence for its its benefit to both patients and to uh, healthcare providers. But I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, we're, it's been very interesting since I left uh, the NHS. I, prior to, to me leaving and founding Verti, I'd spent some time in, in the US healthcare system. Um, I, I did a fellowship working in the Hospital for Special Surgery for Orthopaedics in Manhattan. So that was really my only exposure to um, the US healthcare system. But we operate globally. So we, we've done um, Verti kind of deployments in, in Africa and lots of other countries. And everywhere, you know, healthcare systems are struggling. So um, I think, you know, the US healthcare GDP spend is, is sort of almost like 20% or something crazy. Um, healthcare itself is not particularly sustainable as a as a you know as a business basically um and it, it has to use technology to try and both save costs and optimize things um and I, i'm going to be very interested maybe next year at looking back at what technologies have, have basically stuck around post-covid and people have continued to adopt as things would hopefully return to normal that's really interesting you mentioned the the, the work you've done in america obviously you know verti as, as you said at the start is is, is texas-based and uh, based in in the UK, I just want to get your insight. And in what do you see as the the main differences? And I'm talking about kind of entrepreneurship and approach to innovation between uh, the US and UK. Yes, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that the thing um, the thing for me, and I've I've always you know loved America. Um, it, I, I think the whole like the, just the culture um, of anyone in the United States is very much you know the the, the American dream. Anyone can do every, you know anything they like. Um, entrepreneurs, whether it's you've got like a mum and pop shop like bakery you're setting up or whether you're Google, um, everything is really celebrated um, at, at every stage. And equally failure, especially in, in places like Silicon Valley where there are um, you know, startups rise and fall on a daily basis, uh, failure isn't looked at in, in, you know, as, as cynical light as it is in you know, s- some parts of Europe. And um, I think that's partly due to the fact that that's just something that's ingrained into um, uh, people from the United States at, at a very, very early, early level in, in how they're, you know, in their own sort of culture. I think that's an inherent thing. Um, but also, I think they've just had a lot more uh, exposure to, to, you know, very big technology companies, basically, and, and those types of stories. And um, if you look at the, you know, if you, if you look at the stats for any startup co- uh, company anywhere in the world, 90% fail in year one, um, or even after you go through sort of series A, B or C, your failure rate is still like about, about 70% or maybe even higher. Um, and I think one of the things that, um, 
you know everywhere other than the us really needs to look at is how can we um you know how can we celebrate not just the victories but also the failures and how can we learn from those as much as possible so I, I think on on that side of things, as a technology company in the United States, people actively, um, you know, are are looking to see how they can help you and how they can integrate and utilize your innovative pro- uh, products. I think on the the buyer side of things, especially in healthcare, because healthcare systems in the United States are are private and they're, they're run by um, effectively um, cost categories of of patients who are literally customers through their insurance providers. So the more patients they get coming into the hospital, the more they're effectively remunerated. Um, now, regardless of whether you think uh, private or, or you know, uh, sort of public sector or tax paid healthcare is, is the right way to go. One thing I, I would say about it is um, that because you've got more of a sort of business focus within organizations that are actively looking to make purchase decisions decisions on technology um, that will improve their, their whole business operations. Um, so it, it's much more the procurement decisions and purchase decisions are much more business orientated than they, you know, say are in a, in a much larger, like publicly um, funded organization, not just like the NHS, but in fact, like anything like that. So like the, um, you know, the UK military or, you know, any other um, sort of big publicly funded organization. So um, I think there's pros and cons. I think the US uh, for us has been fantastic. Um, uh, we also obviously have a great relationship with lots of customers in the UK and Europe. Um, but I would say, you know, adoption of technology, and, and this is not just from our company, but from, from you know, lots of my peers tends to be faster moving. Um, in in the US, from what I've seen, I don't know if you have any insight into you know in in, in the US, a lot of the kind of development money used to go into kind of a, a broader base of businesses, but now it seems to be mainly kind of apps and social media platforms that, that are getting a lot of that development funding. Is that is that something you are seeing, and is is that a, a kind of a, a negative thing in some ways? Um, I think it, I think it very much depends. I mean, I think to be honest, we're seeing a huge amount of investment going into health tech at the moment, especially on the back of COVID. Um, uh, I think one of you know one of the big drivers basically is um, in in the United States, particularly on the West Coast, actually, where a lot of the venture capital investment is uh, driven by entrepreneurs who've had successful exits from big companies, and they are probably more likely to. Uh, write a check for sort of a visionary idea that's helping um, people rather than necessarily looking for something that's going to make a, a, a ton of money. Um, that, that is a relatively broad statement. But if you were to raise money from, say, the East Coast or from um, Europe or something like that, obviously, because it's a financial decision, uh, and quite rightly, investors are going to be looking for, um, you know, how, how are you going to return this investment? Um, so I, I think that's one thing. I I, I think with things like um, social media, all these things kind of come and go in a bubble um, is what I've seen over the last kind of you know, five to 10 years. And a lot of that is because of sort of, I guess, human herd mentality in that if one investor sees one amazing trend, um, everyone else suddenly wants to jump on it for fear of missing out, basically. Um, and, and you'll, you know, there's a bunch of like fantastic books looking at uh, investments and in technology over, you know, from like the sort of, you know, 60s or even before. Um, about how these trends kind of come and go. So we, um, interestingly, when, when we got some of our initial investment from um, some investors in San Mateo in Northern California, that was just when blockchain was really kind of taking off um, and all these things go through these sort of adoption curves um, of being very, very 
popular and then they sort of plateau and then they've got to be shown to be useful and actually um, have have um, benefits to customers and, and purchasers. So um, I, I think it's a great time for things like health tech. I think it's a great time for things like obviously any kind of remote education um, and uh, any sort of like online events um, as well, you know, as as you guys have probably seen doing this as, as well. Um, I, I my my overall take on what's happening in in sort of investment is um, is a very positive one actually on the, at the moment on the back of of COVID nineteen. Thanks. One um, uh, final question uh, from me before before we, we we go to the audience, just in terms of. VR and, and AR and its applications for businesses. I mean, you've, you've kind of talked about uh, that today. I mean, it's, it's a bit crystal ball, but what, what do you see in, in sort of 10, 20 years time? How can VR and, and AR pl play a bigger role for companies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I mean one of the reasons that we we focused on sort of VR, AR and AI as sort of emerging technologies is that we really want to empower the future of the workforce. So as well as working with people <clears throat> sort of now, if you think about what the future of the workforce is going to look like, um, it's going to be people who are, um, you know, Tech, they, you know, they've grown up with technology. It's 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 in their blood. Um, they're going to be much more um, uh, sort of diverse and and remote in the ways that they work, especially on the back of COVID nineteen. Um, and they're going to be expecting things like um, much more sort of data on on how they're actually training and and how that translates into their performance. So we've always had our eye on the future rather than sort of what's happening now. And um, there's a great report from um, PwC in the UK. Um, called the future of work um, and another one called seeing is believing which um, seeing is believing looks specifically at vr and ar technology um, what we feel is that the benefits that um, basically immersing people into these real world hazardous but difficult to access in frequent environments and and preparing them and um, improving things like their their knowledge retention um, and, and pulling out new data that can actually drive productivity um, you know, significantly. I think PwC's report um, uh, gives, you know, a huge stat in, in the billions about, you know, over the next five years, that the benefits that, um, uh, in, you know, basically workforce productivity by using VR and AR could, could have on the economy. Um, and what, you know, we, we see this as something that is um, providing a very, very unique way to quantify how people train and learn and progress. Um, and, and for businesses, I mean, just to give you give you a couple of you know our stats. When we've worked with people and integrated specifically our technology into their training pathways, we can basically reduce the time it takes people to train um, by about you know forty to fifty percent in some cases. Reduce the cost of their in-house training by thirty percent, um, and most importantly, we can scale um, and put training materials in everyone's pocket in your organisation um, and and improve their learning. Uh, retention by by upwards of about two hundred percent in some cases was was one of the biggest studies we had, um, as well as reducing staff anxiety. So, those are some of like the actual um, practical um, you know metrics that we've seen, and uh, we we really feel that every single business should be adopting this type of technology um, or at least exploring it for their workforce. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I just also briefly, could you, if you could just mention where you're based in Bristol and how many people you you employ in the company before we, we go on to the questions. Yeah, definitely. So we, uh, so Bristol's been great for us. It's a tech hub outside of, of London. Um, we've got just an amazing tech team. Um, we are uh, nine in total um, on our technical team side, um, all based um, literally just around the corner from the Bristol Royal Infirmary for anyone that knows Bristol, uh, just in Stokescroft. Um, and then we've uh, internationally got another 
um, six um, operational people um, split between the UK and the US. No, thanks, uh, Alex. Uh, we'll now take uh, some questions. From, we've got one come in here. So based on your experience, what advice would you have for leaders considering looking for funding for the first time? Yeah, so um, I, I, I saw um, when um, Anthony Rose was on the, um, uh, the, the interview series a few weeks ago, I mean, he, he gave a really, you know, they've got lots and lots of stats around funding. I mean, I'll, I'll just put my spin on this, um, which is it's very difficult. So um, persuading anyone to uh, not only buy your product, but an investor who, who isn't a customer, who might not know um, your exact problem, the problem that you're solving in your solution is, is tough. Um, the way to approach funding is to actually get your business in order first um, and really make sure that you are painting a story about how you are firstly solving a problem for people and making sure that's a big problem because uh, you know investors want to see return on any investment they put in. Um, and whether it's it's sort of venture capital funding or whether it's you know grant funding um, uh, from the public sector, you've got to be able to explain how your technology solves a problem for people um, and then how that technology solves a problem that's such a pain for people that they're going to um, pay for it and how that payment is then able to scale and grow your company such that any investor money or indeed grant funding money shows a significant return on investment. So, um, I mean, there's a ton of books. I mean, if depending on what um, stage uh, you and your company are at, um, if you're literally just starting out, things like the Lean Startup is is a very basic book, but that, that's a good one to sort of get into and understand how to put things together. Um, but I think just um, putting together what, what, what is effectively a, just a very basic pitch deck, um, like what's, what's the problem we solve? What's our solution? Um, how are we going to grow the company? Um, what's our basic sort of financial modeling around it, i.e. how are people going to buy it? How are we going to grow? Um, and then um, you just need to go and speak to about 100 people <laughs> and, and, and um, you know, go and convince them that you're very, very passionate about what you're doing and that it's a massive problem that you're solving. Um, and depending on the stage of your business, that might just be an idea um, literally on a pitch deck and you might not have anything further than that. Um, if you're further along, hopefully you have some data to back up what you're doing. Thanks, Alex. Some, some good advice there. Uh, another one. Do you think there's space for more collaboration in the tech sector? Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. I mean, I, I, I would love to see more technology companies, especially early stage ones, coming together. Um, I think particularly on the, the customer side, um, I mean, we do this quite a lot with, with some of my colleagues um, in that uh, you know, we have some fantastic customers and, and as well as the, the kind of pain points and problems that we solve with our technology, we often hear from them about other things uh, in other sort of um, departments or areas of their business that they're looking for solutions for. And then we can introduce them to people that we know. So I, I think having collaboration around basically sort of um, anything from simple introductions to, to actually uh, just, you know, going out of your way to help people um, is, is very important. And then I think on, on the technology side, um, especially in things like healthcare, where there's lots of people doing similar types of things or whether it's sort of disease management um, or whether it's um, just collecting data on patients. I, I absolutely think that people should come together more and look at how their technologies could, could be utilized together and, and equally just how they can learn from each other and how they can, um, you know, share learnings at, at each stage as they progress. 
No, thank you uh, there, Alex. So I've got a question here uh, coming from, from Stephen. Um, yeah, what advice would you give to other businesses who haven't adopted emerging technology into their businesses and ways of working yet? Yeah, re really good question. Um, part of part of kind of what we do, um, as well as being a tech company, is we probably do around about sort of uh, ten to twenty percent sort of um, almost like services, so strategy and consulting, specifically around things like this. One of the things that we say is that the, the leadership um, within any organisation needs to have effectively like a chief intelligence officer or a chief information officer um, or chief technology officer, whatever you want to call it, someone who is scouting and looking for innovative solutions um, to bring in so that you've got basically a stakeholder who is passionate about the adoption, sourcing um, and then implementation. And um, organisations need to have a, a process for actually testing these things out because as soon as you have, you know, as soon as you open your, do your door as an organization saying, you know, we're, we're keen to try new technology, you'll have a billion companies from, from literally all over the planet knocking on your door, um, thinking that, that, that they uh, can solve some of your problems. So you need to have a process. And some of the organizations that we work with, they have things like um, accelerator programs. So, you know, the NHS itself, we're, we're the only education company to be part of the NHS is what's called uh, Innovation Accelerator Program, which takes kind of the top 20 health tech businesses each year and, and helps them sort of scale into the NHS. And, and we got onto that by going through a sort of assessment process. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that lots of other organizations should do. They should have an assessment process and they should have someone that's responsible and then also a support process to make sure that once the technology is deployed, um, the return on investment is there and it is it is doing all the things that it, it's it's you know built to do basically. Thanks. Uh, excellent question there. Got one more uh, come in uh, here. So, what has been the most difficult challenge in your career, and, and how did you overcome? Great question. I'll, gi I'll give you two. The first one's a more of a joke one. So, I think actually telling my parents I was leaving medicine um, and going full time as a tech entrepreneur. I think that's anyone who's in medicine uh, will will completely understand that. I think from a, a business point of view, um, I was lucky in that I'd I'd done the grind and had a couple of businesses previously, which, you know, Touchwood had always done quite well. Um, but for me with Verti, I had not um, hired a huge team before. So I, my previous businesses were all relatively smaller, in some cases, just me. And I think hiring great people is one of the biggest challenges for any leader or, or CEO or founder, um, as along with kind of getting funding and getting your um your your kind of mission and focus on point um and for me the way to overcome that was very much speaking to, to people who i knew had hired fantastic teams it was just deep diving into books and information on how to hire people in a very data-driven way um and then trial and error and, and integrating it in and and we uh you know did have hired some fantastic people um we've also made some mishires along the way but from all of it you learn um and, and you improve. And I think with, with any kind of business, that's that's as much as you can do, certainly in the first couple of years. Thank you. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, uh, final question is coming. What is the best advice that you have ever received, Alex? That's a big, big question. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a great one. I mean, for me personally, it's it's just really simple. It's it's always have fun and always be grateful. Um, and and I think, you know, I've always said, if I don't if I don't wake up and I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, I need to question, you know, what I'm doing. And I think that, you know, the, the, the flip side to that is be grateful. So um, 
with any business or in fact anything doesn't have to be business at all um people i guess you know me especially can be quite uh, guilty of of just doing lots and lots of stuff and going towards the next goal and not taking time just to kind of reflect on things and think actually you know what we've done is is fantastic in a short space of time so um those are my my two big ones for anybody really which is one have fun um you're only here for a limited period of time um and and be grateful with everything you you get coming your way and, and you do